Hi everyone, welcome to the Idiots Podcast, that's Infectious Disease Insight of Two Specialists. I'm Jamie, that's Callum, and we're going to tell you everything you need to know about infectious disease. Soon may the editing come to discontinue the Tazo Sun. One day when the CRP's done, we'll take our leave and go. Callum, how are you doing? Well, we were just talking that we're now on episode 22, so we're feeling quite clever. Clever. Clever, that's it. Clever. Yeah. We're feeling quite clever. Yeah. How are we, what were we talking about on this episode? Bunny, you should say, Callum, because we're discussing Klebsiella. Oh, right. Hmm. Klebsiella. Hmm. So we're continuing the gram negatives. Uh, we're in Enterobacter rallies order, and we're in Enterobacteriaceae family, and we've done E. coli 1, I think everyone would say Klebsiella too. Mm. So why is it called Klebsiella, Jim? It's named for uh, a Swiss-German microbiologist called Edwin Klebs, who discovered Klebsiella pneumoniae, which is the most uh, uh, common organism in the Klebsiella genus. Nice. Okay, so we're, so we're going to just tell you a little bit about the um, organism, the site of infection, risk factors, how does it cause harm? It's pathogenic mechanisms, some clinical syndromes, how you ID it in the lab, and then a little bit about the treatment of Klebsiella. So Klebsiella, named for Edwin Klebs, the main species that we talk about in the genus would be Klebsiella pneumoniae, Klebsiella oxytosa, Klebsiella varicola, and Klebsiella aerogenes. I'm not sure why I put so much emphasis on that. So uh, normally Jamie gets to list out bacteria, so I thought I would jump in and say it before he got a chance this time. Email idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Do you think Jamie read them better or Callum? I think Jamie did it better. Oh, okay, so we're dividing the audience only 22 episodes in. I don't think that's very clever, Callum. Oh, dear. So just a, a small point. So pneumonia is named for, it was first discovered as a potential cause for pneumonia. Um, so you might have heard of Friedlander's pneumonia. So he um, was a pathologist who discovered Klebsiella pneumonia in the lungs of patients who died of uh, pneumonia and thought that Klebsiella was potentially the causative organism. Um, we now know that streptococcus pneumonia is the most common cause of pneumonia, but Klebsiella can cause pneumonia, particularly in certain risk groups, which we'll come on to. Uh, oxytosa, so uh, it's named as it was first isolated from sour milk. So oxus meaning sour and, and tokos me, meaning producing. And this is a bit of a theme for Klebsiella and that they're found quite, quite commonly in the environment as well as in the, in the human, as opposed to E. coli, which is not so much found in the environment. Uh, oxytosa is indole positive, which differentiates it. And then we've got varicola and aerogenes. So uh, aerogenes used to be enterobacter, aerogenes and before it was Enterobacter, it was a different genus as well so it keeps changing name was it really okay i didn't know that yeah it used to be drum roll it used to be called aerobacter aerogenes really okay and before that's where that, went did it before that it was called bacteria aerogenes just bacteria aerogenes yeah that was that was when people just found bacteria Huh, okay. It's been around for a while. <laughs> I saw so it has. I mean, Klebsiella itself was discovered fairly early on by 
by, by this guy, Edwin Klebs, who has a really interesting uh, Wikipedia page. If we could uh, have a quick sidebar, Callum, mm, okay. you can edit this out if this is not uh, interesting, but uh, you've heard of Koch's postulates, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this guy predates Koch and influenced him substantially, and he had some postulates of his own, which he identified as Grundversuche, or fundamental tests in German, uh, which were the sort of basis for bacteriological research. And these were, in order, first, all bacteria are pathological. Oops. Second, bacteria never occur spontaneously. Third, every disease is caused only by bacteria. And fourth, the bacteria that cause distinguishable diseases are distinguishable, as in they're different from each other. Mm, if only it was that easy. He also thought that uh, malaria was caused by a bacterium, and this delayed the discovery of plasmodium as the true cause of malaria by, people think, a couple of decades, which is a bit of a shame. Interesting. So he didn't get it all right, but this guy did make some early advances in bacteriology, and then that was taken on by... Koch in Germany and Pasteur in France, who I think we should do have a, a separate podcast on uh, later on the history. A whole different podcast. Or do you mean a podcast episode? Yeah, a whole different. No, no, no. A, a separate podcast episode. You have to come up with another name. Oh God. Yeah. It's really interesting. I um I think it would be much yeah. easier if it was just bacteria, um because it's generally a bit easier to manage than viruses. Uh, yeah, if only. So anyway, like uh, like Cal says that the, the Klebsiella, it's a very kind of ubiquitously found organism. So obviously, it's it's a mutual organism in mammals and and animals in general, but it's also environmental. So it's found in the soil uh, a lot. So it's very easy to get colonized with it. In humans, it tends to be in the upper respiratory tract and the pharynx, and then the gastrointestinal tract. That's where it where it resides normally. In terms of the clinical syndromes that it can cause when it kind of when it does, it's sort of very commonly known as a, a UTI pathogen. So when you're thinking about the different bacterial causes of UTI, uh, about 70% will be E. coli, 20% will be Klebsiella, and then 10% will be everything else, uh, all others. And so it's commonly seen in UTIs. It's not a very common cause of community-acquired pneumonia, is it, Cal? But uh, if you're in a hospital environment and you're relatively immunocompromised, it can cause, uh, be a cause of hospital onset pneumonia or healthcare-acquired pneumonia uh, or ventilator-associated pneumonia. It can cause biliary sepsis and surgical site infections. And uncommonly, it is a cause of meningitis. In terms of the kind of risk factors for who would get infected with Klebsiella. Most of the time, it's the, this list is um, uh, would be very common to the kinds of people that would get all other bacterial infections. It's people that have impaired host defenses for whatever reason. So if you've got liver or kidney disease, diabetes, alcoholism, malignancy, if you're on long-term steroids, or if you've got chest compromise like COPD that would predispose you to being infected with uh, Klebsiella too. Yeah, there's another important syndrome useful to mention, and it comes starts to come into the pathogenic mechanisms. So maybe we'll go through the, into the pathogenic mechanisms and use that as a segue back into clinical syndromes. So two main pathogenic mechanisms that you can 
um, identify. So there's O antigen, um, and this is part of lipopolysaccharides, uh, which are a normal sort of virulence factor and gram negatives part of their um, extend, uh, cell membrane. And the function of the O antigen is it, it gives resistance to phagocytosis by uh, macrophages. There's five types. You don't use this for ID, but it's an important part of the pathogenicity. And then the other main pathogenic mechanism is a K antigen, and this is related to the capsule. Um, so you can even see this on the, on a, you know, if you grow the organism on a plate, you can see that it's a bit mucoid. And the function of the K antigen is it confers resistance to complement. Uh, there's over 80 types, and you can sort of look at this at reference labs and identify which type. And upper respiratory tract, you usually see one to six. And in the UK, two, three, and 21 are the most common. But there is a specific syndrome, uh, which K1 antigen is a risk factor for. And this is uh, where you get a pyogenic liver abscess, which then seeds and causes either ocular CNS infection, which is a rare complication. Um, and there's lots of theories about why exactly this occurs. I don't think it's completely known or understood what exactly is happening, but it is something to do with the bacteria having resistance to sera and uh, human sera and um, complement, allowing it to spread more systemically. Uh, and the real problem with this is that uh, ocular infections in particular are really difficult to manage because difficulties of drug pharmacokinetics of getting into the eye. Um, but you do see, so I think that the pa patients I've seen that have this syndrome have been from uh, Southeast Asia and traveled to the UK and then developed this. And I, I think that's to do with the different epidemiology of where these different K antigens are common. And it's quite uncommon to see in the UK. Yeah. And th there's a host genetic aspect to it as well. So like a lot of the research into K1 hyperproduction has been coming out of Taiwan where they've, uh, they see this quite commonly as a clinical syndrome. Yeah. I think I read something about, there was theories about something to do with HLA. HLA is a type of MHC. MHC is major histocompatibility complex. Yep. And HLA is human leukocyte, leukocyte antigen. antigen. Yeah. And they were first discovered on leukocytes. And then at some point they discovered that HLA and MHC were the same thing. So now you can use either interchangeably when you're talking about humans, when you move to mice or some other primate, you have to go back to MHC. Uh, okay, talk about lab ID. Talk about lab ID. Let's talk about you and me. <laughs> what are we meant to be doing? So, oh, do you want um, me to do the lab ID? So, Klebsiella, they are facultatively anaerobic. James? You do the next bit. We're going to do it line about. <laughs> um, the colonies would, uh, they, they grow quite well on blood agar, but when you're trying to grow gram negative, you tend to use something called maconchi agar. And uh, Klebsiella will grow large mucoid colonies uh, there. They're catalase positive. Uh, and they are oxidase negative, as are all enterobacterales, except for plesiomonas. So that's a good thing to remember in the exam. In terms of species ID, Callum? Species ID, so they are lactose fermenting and they're urease positive, and that gives you a presumptive ID of a Klebsiella. Mm. Um, so if you've got a lactose fermenting organism in your agar and you do a urease test, then you've, you're probably looking at Klebsiella. 
And you can confirm that through uh, Moldentov testing. You can uh, test with indole, in which they will be indole negative, except Klebsiella oxytoca, which will be indole positive. Um, but to be honest, most of the most of the lab identification for this, particularly with blood cultures, is now done with Moldentov. Yeah, that's the lab ID. And they're quite easy to grow and quite easy to identify. Yeah, and slightly more difficult to kill uh, than E. coli, see? Uh, we're not going to go through all the things that you can use to treat gram-negative infection. As I said previously, we're just going to talk about differences from, uh, from E. coli constitutive resistances, uh, for example. And Klebsiella does have a constitutive penicillinase, which means that almost all Klebsiella that you grow in the lab are resistant to penicillin and amoxicillin. So you can't use amoxicillin for any Klebsiella infections. Um, so... Um, that is why some people would uh, not recommend amoxicillin, say, for uh, for UTI, because if you think about the, if they're causing 20% of UTIs, then by definition, at least 20% of UTIs are going to be amoxicillin resistant. And that wouldn't, uh, you know, a one in five fail rate is quite, quite high. Most people would prefer to use something that was working 90 plus percent of the time. Mm. Uh, the other thing to say is that these things have crazy amounts of resistance mechanisms. So they are, the loyal listener will probably know already that they are a major source of beta atomases in the, in the body. Um, I couldn't see a lot of talk of why this actually, uh, why this actually was. My assumption is that because they are so ubiquitous in the environment and as well as in, uh, you know, mammalian hosts that they kind of need to be able to produce beta-lactamases to prevent themselves from being predated upon by other fungi and bacteria all the time. But Klebsiella are the source of a lot of beta-lactamases. The penicillinase that Staph aureus has, it pinched it from Klebsiella uh, sometime in the late 1940s or early 1950s. Uh, a bunch of the ESBLs and MCs are from Klebsiella. There is a carbapenemase called KPC, which stands for Klebsiella pneumoniae carbapenemies. And in particular, there's a, a statistic here that I thought was interesting. So of 9,000 infections reported to the CDC in the USA due to carbapenemies resistant enterobacterales in 2013, 80% were due to Klebsiella pneumoniae. So they are a big source of carbapenemases. Some of the metallo-beta-lactamase carbapenemases, like the New Delhi mutation, that was from a Klebsiella too. And that isn't to mention um, efflux pumps and porin loss and target modification, all of which Klebsiella also uh, stores. And uh, they can also generate resistance against aminoglycosides, quinolones, which are your, you know, your gram-negative infection big hitters, as well as other things like cotrimoxazole, tetracyclines, and chloramphenicol, uh, using these other resistance mechanisms. So there's a lot of mechanisms which can be laid on top of another to produce a, a, an extremely drug-resistant organism. And in fact, I've got a nice uh, uh, image here, which I'd like to link to in the, in the show notes um, about how Klebsiella resistance can evolve over time from a really nice uh, uh, review paper. Um, well, we'll do that. You can click on that and look at it on your phone and it'll be very nice. <laughs> Although it's a horrible thing. So yeah, mixed, mixed emotions on that one. True. I always find I, I've, we've treated a few K1s in, uh, 
they need Osroyl Infirmary. And trouble with them is that they need long-term therapy. A lot of the time, the liver abscess either has already been drained and there's a little bit residual or it's difficult to drain. And all the kind of things that you would want to put people on long-term tend to cause kind of side effects, you know, like, um, uh, you know, say coltramoxazole, you can get the renal impairment, but if you use it for more than a week, you start to get bone marrow suppression. Quinlones, obviously, there's the C. diff risk, but there's also tendinitis, and people will know about the MHRA warning about um, root rupture, um, which may or may not turn out to be real. I think there's mounting evidence that it's probably not probably not real, um, but it's still there, and we still have to consider it when we're prescribing them. And then other things, it's just, you know, stuff like tetracyclines, they have a low barrier to resistance. You wouldn't really trust them for the kind of this kind of serious infection. It makes it very difficult to treat long-term. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I guess if we're talking about a case of, of K1, then the challenges really are that you get this deep source, which is hard to treat. And even if you drain the liver abscess, it's very mucoid and seems to just take longer to resolve. And so you end up having this long duration of therapy. And the other problem is if you get ocular CNS infection, then getting adequate, getting a drug that adequately pre- penetrates into the, into the orbit um, mm. or into the CSF, the CNS uh, is difficult. So I think in the cases that we've had, we use keftazidine. Uh, and the idea was that they had a liver abscess and they had ocular infection. And then they were getting intraocular antibiotics. And there's not very many antibiotics you can give intraocularly, but keftazidine is one of them. Mm-hmm. And that um, if you gave it systemically and intraocular, you'd create a concentration gradient and therefore increase the amount of keftazidine that would stay in the eye because you know you, your drugs will follow a concentration gradient. So if you've got a high number of keftazidine in the eye and there's none in the blood, then all the keftazidine will just come out. Whereas at least if there's a blood concentration, then it hopefully will persist for a bit longer. Yeah, I mean, we do that. I don't really know that there's a lot of evidence supporting that. Um, you know, when it comes to pharmacokinetic stuff like that, like for people who don't know what we're talking about, the, the vitreous, the jelly bit in the middle of your eye, that's it's possible to inject antibiotics into them and they'll, they'll sort of stay in there. And so this is what you do to treat endophthalmitis or an infection of the inner part of the eye. This is what we're talking about here. Klebsiella can, K1, uh, Klebsiella can migrate there. And if you have the vitreous is, is sort of its own compartment and then the blood is another compartment. And if you've got keftazidine on both sides of it, in theory, there will be less keftazidine leaving the eye to equalize with, uh, with the bloodstream. I've seen no hard evidence that that actually does anything in terms of hard outcomes. I know that some, maybe even many ophthalmologists prefer it, but I know that equally there's um, skepticism as to whether or not it's mm. worth doing. It'd be very, I wonder how you'd prove that. I guess you need like an animal model or something. But the endophthalmitis is so kind of small fry in terms of in, in you know infections that I think it would be very difficult to do anything without enrolling like a whole country's worth of ophthalmologists and infectious disease physicians, you know, all doing the same. You can get uh, you can get endophthalmitis with non-K1 cleb pneumonia, but K1 is the major risk factor for it. So it's much more likely to cause it. I think K2 is the second most likely. Oh, really? Yeah. 
from the reading I did for the episode. Um, <laughs> asked me to quote the paper. I forgot what it was now. So we've talked about Klebsiella. We've talked about how to identify it, where I usually find it, environmental presence, clinical syndromes it causes, risk factors for infection, pathogenic mechanisms, a little bit about lab ID and a little bit about treatment. And and that's all we've got to say about Klebsiella. Quick one today. Uh, questions, comments, suggestions, why don't you send them to idiotspodcasting at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Jane. I'm Callum. See you then.